and welcome to This Movie is Gay, a podcast that takes your favorite apparently heterosexual films and demonstrates why that is in fact not the case. I'm Haley. I'm Emma. And I was going to wear my red jacket to record this episode and then I forgot. <laughs> um, because today we are talking about the 1955 movie Rebel Without a Cause, the latest Oof. installment in our The 50s Were Bad series. Yes. Yeah, truly. I mean, we're back here again. I thought about The Outsiders a lot while we watched, but what else? Mm-hmm. We've, had a, we've had several greatest hits in the 50s or bad category. We had this. We had Stand By Me, arguably. Yes. Um, Dead Poet Society, really, back in the yeah. day. 50s or, 50s or bad, y'all. I spent a really long time not to just like dive immediately into a digression, but like I spent Mm. a really long time trying to think about like what is the sort of post-nuclear metaphor for like this generation of children who have been completely abandoned by their parents in like all but the most literal sense. It's very weird that that's just like the preoccupation of all of these movies is Mm. like this is a generation of children whose parents are just may as well not exist. That's true. That has been true in all of the 50s movies that we've covered. Uh, yeah, Dead Poet Society, a different echelon of society, but the same problem. Stand By Me. Yeah. Uh, Stand By Me Outsiders. Yeah, Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. And it's just, and speaking of different echelons of society, I feel like Rebel Without a Cause like fills in the middle class yeah. gap between the like super posh Dead Poet Society and the, you know, dirtbag greasers of the other two. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the suburban kids are in trouble. Here we are. Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting pattern that I feel like we'll dive into as we mm-hmm. sort of dive into this movie just because it's sort of like Freudian analysis of its own characters is so thinly veiled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and I mean, at the same time doesn't get at the truth. That's what's so interesting about like the conversation. I mean, not to, cause we already brought it in the conversation we had about the dead poet society way the fuck back in the day about the fact that it's like, what is the problem between this boy and his parents? It does. It isn't the thing that you think it is. Mm-hmm. It isn't like, there has to be a deeper thing. And the deeper thing is that he's gay. And it's like, here we are again, rebel without a cause. What is the, you know, like the film, like you say, the Freudian analysis is so thinly veiled and so obsessed with itself. Like they're so interested in explicitly analyzing their own characters and yet they don't make the correct analysis, which isn't that Plato, poor kid, needs a family. It's that he's flagrantly homosexual. Yes. And before we get too much deeper into that, we should probably do a plot summary. Let's do it. Um, Yeah. So this is a film from 1955 starring James Dean, who had passed away shortly before it came out. (sighs) Natalie Wood, who died shortly after. And Sal Mineo, who also is another sort of tragic mid-century Hollywood figure. Um, So yet another The 50s Are Bad movie sort of seeped in the tragedy of its own cast as well. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't believe. So first of all, I had never seen it. And I I couldn't believe how young they were. I, I mean, because Natalie Wood is obviously a face we know from West Side Story and from, you know, from later stuff. And I could not. She's a literal teenager here. Yeah, she was 16. She's a kid. Um, but we're digressing from the plot summary again. Sorry, dear. Um, no, it's okay. We, we, we're, we're unfocused today. That's just going to be the energy of this, of this this year podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Rebel Without a Cause, films in 1955, set in the present of its own time, the mid-50s, um, tells the story of a boy named Jim Stark, an incredibly Marvel movie name, who mm. moves to a new town because he got in some kind of trouble in his old town. And it's an incredibly weirdly paced and structured film. It's just a sort of series of set pieces of Jim's basically like first day Mm. New town. It begins with him sort of having been arrested for public drunkenness and like having mm. an encounter at a police station where he sort of brushes against Judy, a sort of greaser girlfriend who has a very complicated relationship with her dad and a boy named Plato who is sort of acting out in response to his absentee parents. Um, and the three of them sort of drift along towards each other over the course of the next day. They're all in high school together. Um, Jim gets into a fight with some like greaser boys outside a planetarium and gets challenged (laughs) to play chicken with them that night, which he does in keeping with 
all of our the 50s are bad movies the boy that he is challenged by named buzz is killed in like by driving his car off a cliff um in an, again incredibly weirdly filmed and paced sequence um and then judy plato and jim sort of playhouse in this mm-hmm. abandoned mansion in the like mountains for the rest of this one night at the end of which Plato sort of freaks out waves around the gun that he stole from his parents house and um, when they're sort of cornered by the police Plato is in a sort of misunderstanding shot and killed and that is where the movie ends you could see me struggling yeah. to summarize it because like it doesn't have a plot it's just sort of no like stuff happens. It felt very theatrical to me. I was it kind of does actually. It wasn't a play first. It sort of almost observes the unities. Like I couldn't believe I couldn't believe it takes place over a single day. It really is like a like twenty four hours. I forget what time they say it, it is when, at the beginning, but it's probably around that time of night by the end. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, and I mean, and multiple people die in the lives of these teenagers in a 24 hour period. It's insane. It's wild. It is in, in keeping with, I know we, I know we already said this, but like in keeping with another, another trope of some of our, the fifties are bad movies. The outsiders is what it made me think of particularly, even though this is suburban and those kids are poor and it's a different, like, you know, it's a different echelon of society or whatever. Like everyone is armed to the teeth constantly. It's so it's still a world in a suburban high school where teenagers work out their differences by like pulling knives on each other in the parking lot. Like that's still, it's incredibly high stakes violence. And I also was thinking about, um, because we recently did Romeo and Juliet, Mm. that was in, that was in my head a lot too, about the fact that it's Mm -hmm. like, speaking of you know theater and it's like we just did Romeo and Juliet a film where teenagers work out their shit in knife fights on the street and Rebel Without a Cause is like not different yeah it's really interesting so one of the things that I found when I was sort of doing some reading about this was much like I think what something we can agree is a clear spiritual successor to this movie um Mean Girls uh, it was <laughs> based, Mean Girls, I think people know, was based on on a like nonfiction, cultural, psychological kind of study of female friendships. Mm-hmm. And yes. this book, this book, this movie was based on a book written by a psychologist that was basically like a, psycho, a psychoanalysis of teenage delinquents. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super obvious. Like when you yeah. know that, you're like, yes, this was inspired by psychology, not yeah. narrative. <laughs> No, because the parents are, the parents are not characters. They are footnotes. They're concepts. They're They're Freudian archetypes. Right, they're archetypes. Exactly. And like the opening scene in the police station where in sequence, Jim, Judy, and Plato all are spoken to by this sort of like child psychologist that the police department like has on staff who you think is going to kind of be a bigger part of the movie and then isn't. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he just sort of like analyzes the three of them. And like the first thing we get of all three of them is this sort of like explicit unpacking of their like psychological problems. Yeah. Yeah. And so right away, the conflict of the film or like the material of the film is set forth in that opening scene as like these kids have problems with their parents, each of them in a different way. Here we go. You know? Yeah. And I think in our sort of, framework the thing that I kept thinking is like why can only Plato not overcome them yes because everyone else you know you sort of get the sense that Judy and Jim Mm -hmm. in finding each other Mm. are now you know like they're Mm. moving forward they leave the planetarium yes but Plato can survive right because his problem is a deeper problem that the film is it's almost brave enough to address and it's all but it's really it dances so close to the line it's really all but I did a tiny bit of reading about about the sort of haze code of it all I was gonna this is what I was gonna bring up as well yeah no go ahead no yeah and so that it was it was sort of recognized as skirting the line at the time and yeah they were sent like a studio memo that said um by no means can there be an inference of a questionable or homosexual relationship between Plato and Jim. Right. 
and, except for like there absolutely is because, yeah you know I mean and like the director James Dean I mean we don't know for sure about James Dean and Salmoneo were all bisexual yeah so like I think they were oh and apparently like in the scene in the planetarium at the very end oh James yes. Dean said to Salmoneo look at me the way I look at Natalie right and so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, it's just gay as all hell, fam. It's gay as all hell. And, but what's so interesting about it is the tension between how gay it is and how sort of sensitive it is and the kind of performances of and kind of carapace of masculinity that is so 50s about it. Everybody's issues with their dads, the competition between Jim, James Dean's character, and Buzz, this other boy, the kind of posturing of masculinity that they do for their audience of their friends. It's like so many things that we've talked about before and yet more explicitly than ever before, I feel like the characters are like crumbling explicitly because of those expectations of masculinity. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird balance because this is our only the 50s are bad movie that was actually made in the 50s. I mean, I know The Outsiders was written in the 50s, but the movie wasn't made until the 80s. Until the 80s. Right. So it is caught in this weird like double Mm. bind of like. Right. Yes, they're sort of crumbling under these expectations of masculinity, but there's also like a lot of really weird and sexist things. Like nobody challenges the Mm -hmm. weird frigid mom idea or like kind of wonders you know maybe this situation isn't as straightforward as it seems and like judy's weird 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 freudian relationship with her dad is like really fucked up and sexist and like not (laughs) no it's the one i mean i guess we should sort of i think it might be helpful to kind of just go through and talk about the kids deals with their parents because it's like Judy's is the is the least developed in my opinion. The le- it's the most like we read a psych textbook and wrote this film mm-hmm. of it's all of very, them, right? Yeah, which I mean, again, like in keeping with a trend we've pointed out so many times, really strongly suggests that in terms of interpersonal relationships, the filmmakers were more interested in other pairs. Yeah, right, 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 right. Well, it's just also suggestive because she's she's beautiful young Natalie Wood. She's the young female lead. She's starring opposite James Dean you know like it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be her and the film is definitely more interested I feel like the film is more interested in the boys Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the director feels more interested in the boys yeah but it's like the script is sort of trying to yes yes (laughs) okay so as well but yeah so she has this weird 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 relationship where like yeah she is hurt because her dad no longer wants to show her physical affection and right. no longer sort of wants to express his love for her in the way that he expresses love for her like eight-year-old child younger brother and like right. there's this horrible scene where she's like trying to get him to kiss her and she like on wants the to, mouth let's on the be mouth, clear and he she wants to like sit on his lap and it's just like also it's like she's 16 years old natalie wood yeah it's- and like it's it's really weird and like I mean I keep saying Freudian because like that's just all it's just it's just all it is well as I texted you when we were when I was watching it it's it's reverse view from the bridge is her is her problem because instead of the because what's weird about it is that she we meet her in the police station like you said and she talks about her dad like he's a really strict mean horrible guy and so Mm -hmm. me having never seen the movie I expected him, the problem with the dad to be really different. Yeah, and well, then because you- in the first scene, it's like what she's saying is like, he says all these horrible, horrible things about me. And like, yeah, you he know, calls me a tramp and stuff. Yeah, and like- you're like, well, that's fucked up. Like, right. But then when you meet the dad, the issue is that Natalie is like, give me a kiss, daddy. And like, tries to like kiss him on the mouth. And then he's like, um, that's no longer appropriate. And like, he's actually being super reasonable. Yeah. You're like, I mean. And so then you're like, the problem is you, Natalie, my love. It's so weird. Like she like storms out of the room and he like very relatably is like, I don't know what to do about this. No. And then her mom is just like, no, it's a difficult age. She'll grow out of it. And then you're just like, wait, what? This is not at all the family that I thought she had, you know, or like the problem I was led to expect. Can I lead us on a tangent really fast? Because you reminded me of something else. I find another really interesting thread of this movie that feels very queer to me is like, 
Yeah, the mom's whole thing is like, it's a phase. And like, there's this whole thing that Jim has with his parents or both of them in separate scenes are like 10 years from now, Ugh. you'll feel this, like there's something like his dad's like 10 years from now, you'll think it's ridiculous that you thought these things were so important. That's right. Um, That's and right. And then this, well, yeah, just this sense of like, your true self exists in the future. This thing, okay, so this thing, I'm so glad you brought us here because that was one of the moments that like, I literally almost cried because um, Jim's response to that is he like, he sort of screams and holds his head and he says, 10 years, I need an answer now. Mm -hmm. And that um, reminded me of Neil from Dead Poet Society. Oh yeah. It's the same exact thing of like, you're gonna go to, you know, cause it's the same, the dad says, you'll go to, you'll go to, you know, like medical school or law school or whatever the fuck and, you know, 10 years. And then Neil says, that's a life sentence. And the dad says, don't be so dramatic. It's like the same. That's so interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's like all I could think about, like, you know, because by that point you're like an hour into the movie and you right. realized everyone is gay. It's very like, <laughs> you know, this this is a phase. It'll pass. Like, yes. you aren't going to feel these feelings yes. your entire life. You're going to grow up into like the normal heteronormative right. nuclear family lifestyle. Right. Right. But that's such an interesting, I mean, yeah, because- the idea that there is a new life phase mm-hmm. yeah. that parents don't know how to parent because the idea of a, the teenager right. had not, it took like a different form in the 1940s and 1950s right. than it had had. Um, post-war. Like it, yeah, post-war and like, yeah, post-industrial sort of like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it it, is sort of sociologically, like I'm like that there is something that makes sense in the idea of like that we have all these kids, but they aren't kids now. They're but they're not adults either. And like what is this? Yeah, and it's like the first time the question is really broken open because the kids don't have to be, you know, because society has progressed to a place where the kids aren't working or dying. Right, exactly. They're not at war and they're not in the factory. So it's like, what am I supposed to do with these willful 16-year-olds who Right. And they don't know what to do with themselves, which is why all of the nervous energy sort of curdles into these weird expressions. And that's why so much of the art of the period is so sort of angst-ridden. I thought about West Side Story because mm-hmm. Natalie Wood is here a lot, mm-hmm, but like, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously like gang warfare is a different kind of expression of, of, you know, but it's still young people dicking around because more or less they need to blow off steam and because they feel like their society has like forgotten them. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like- But I don't know. The thing about parenting that you're saying is interesting because like I was thinking about how so Natalie Wood's dad shit is weird. That's that's that. And it (laughs) and it doesn't it doesn't ever get more complicated than that. And it doesn't ever get solved because it feels like the filmmakers were like, again, we read a psych textbook and this happened and we're bored now. We're bored now and we're moving on to who we really care about. Jim and Plato. Plato Mm -hmm. is a nickname. His real name is John. Just to put that on the table. Yeah. But um, which I'm grateful that we don't have to deal with Jim and John as our two main characters. I know. Me too. I was like, Ugh. but what's weird about it, what I was thinking about it was that n- we kind of just came to the conclusion that like, okay, well in Natalie Wood's house, in Judy's home, the problem is Judy mm-hmm. and her parents seem perfectly fine. You think mm-hmm. the problem's going to be them, but actually they seem perfectly fine. What's going on in the boys who are gay? What's going on in the <laughs> gay boys households is that in, in neither one, uh, the nuclear family is not being modeled properly for mm-hmm. either of them. And it is being modeled properly in Natalie Wood's home. At least we're talking about like fifties, mm-hmm. fifties gender standards and all of that. But mm-hmm. Jim, our 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 boy, our boy James Dean, um, Jim's issue is that his mom is really overbearing and um, like you know, strident and domineering. And his father is really feminine and emasculated and wears an apron and is afraid of his mother. He's like this henpecked house husband. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And his mother's mother is also present, I think. Like there's a grandma in the picture, I think. Yeah, she shows up in the first scene, but then we don't see her again. Right. But the the effect is is of, you know, women just kind of completely running the household and sort of domineering over the dad. And um, that's like the issue in his home is that he doesn't know what masculinity is supposed to look like because it isn't being modeled for him. Mm -hmm. And then the issue is the issue is compounded and even weirder in Plato's home because his parents are gone, are just straight up gone. And 
I was unclear, genuinely unclear, whether one or both of them are dead or whether they're both just absent. I think neither of them are dead. Really? I felt like one of them was dead. No, I think it's, I feel like what the, his sort of nanny housekeeper says at the beginning is that his dad left when he was a little kid and his mom is like always off. Right. But then he later says, because later then Judy or one of them is like, where are your parents? And he's like, oh, my dad died in the China Sea. Right. And then yeah. it's sort of in the course of a conversation is like, that's not true. And he's yeah. like, well, we might as well be dead. Yes. Okay. So yeah. So family, family, heterosexuality, heteronormativity, all of those things are are being are not being modeled to the degree that they're not present at all in the mm-hmm. life of this kid. So he, and also he's kind of rich. So he lives alone in a in a sort of like fancy house with a housekeeper mm-hmm. and has no one and is like a strange child and then Jim comes into town. So it's just so interesting the fact that the film is like these boys their issue is not good heterosexual parenting yeah it's bad dads I mean it's interesting yeah it's they're all sort of comfortably upper middle class like at the beginning Mm. when Jim's parents come to pick him up um at the police station Mm. they're like oh we were at a dinner like and you get the sense it was some sort of like society dinner um and it's interesting in light of like yeah the title and it's like I implication Mm. that like they have no reason to be this way like it's not like the outsiders or West side story where it's like they're impoverished, they're impoverished, you know, they're at risk of crime. They're being, you know, stand by me. Yeah. Yeah. Being profiled by the police. Like, you know, there's social pressures that they are sort of acting out against. This is very much, I mean, it's the title rebel without a cause. It's like, what are you rebelling against? What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just, there's so many interesting places to go from here, but like the fact Mm -hmm. that that is the background and the film is just like, boom, here it is. And yet, yeah, from, from here, a ton of gay shit goes down. A ton of gay shit goes down. And it's just, I feel Like, like the film itself, like there is the other reason it feels like it was written by like a psychologist is like, this sense of sort of baffled detachment. Like one of the early things that happens is Jim, Jim and Judy are neighbors. So he sort of meets her on his first day of school. And then she's quickly swept up in her gang of like ne'er-do-well. Popular kids. Popular kids and her boyfriend, Buzz, who they sort of tease Jim and mock him. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, whatever that happens. Everybody goes to school. They go to a class trip to a planetarium. And then after the trip to the planetarium, they just decide to vandalize Jim's car which yeah. then devolves into this very menacing enforced knife fight. And it's just yeah. these sort of like nice suburban looking kids on this beautiful suburban planetarium. And you're just like, why is this happening? And like the film itself provides no motivation for this. It's like, it just no. happens. They just decide to menace the new yeah. kid. Right. For no reason. Right. For no reason. And and they sort of have to. It's an absolute, it's an it's a sort of incredibly choreographed group ritual, the hazing yeah. of the car. Because the thing is, there's there were mo- this is what fascinated me about the film. It's it's really obviously written, which is what we're saying, you know, over and over. And yet the filmmaking of it is kind of incredible. Like that sequence ha- is sort of staged and filmed with so much weird craft. So all of the kids swarm his car and like slash his tires and stuff. And the way that it's filmed is like Jim is up on a balcony looking down and the cross cutting and the music and the tension of the moment is like, there is so much tension and so much stakes. It's weirdly trance-like the tension between them from the distance. And then of course, what it what it does really brilliantly is show that the kinds of things that keep happening to Jim, he doesn't want to happen and he participates because he feels he must. Mm-hmm. And like, it's not like he is kicking up trouble. He participates because he has to. And because of the social contract of the day, which is, you know, if you are menaced in this particular way, you have to stand up to, he later says to his father in an incredibly, um, 
you know, uh, a part of heartbreakingly grandiose way. What would you do if you had to do something really dangerous that you didn't want to do, but it was a matter of honor? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're, I think it's yes and no, right? Because he doesn't want to do these things, but then he's so, his like trigger word is being called a chicken. He cannot cope with sort of slights against his courage and masculinity, which were led to connect to his emasculated father, et cetera, et cetera. But it really is like, he's like, no, I don't want this. He's refusing to participate. And then they're like, oh, you're chicken. And it's like, you know, the Hulk switch in his brain slips and now he's going to do a knife fight. Like he's not not culpable. No, no, he's not not culpable, but he doesn't want to like he participates reluctantly and also Mm -hmm. the chicken thing was hilarious to me because it was like oh like it's so close to meaning it was like you know what what do we think that's what do we think what slur do we think that is a stand-in for right you know i mean like it's so so close to just being what it is and (laughs) the whole the whole movie is that you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. it's so yeah it's just so interesting i feel like because i haven't said yet i really want to say having never seen it before which is kind of wild i it is such a good performance Mm. but like the james dean is james dean is so good Mm -hmm. it kind of blew my mind there are there there are there are scenes where i was like this is amazing acting like this this like yeah i'm with it like this is amazing acting and he really carried me through like moments (laughs) where the writing is less subtle but where i was like i believe you like i believe the issue here you know yeah he's up against a lot but he does it he does a good job um he does he's certainly the reason the movie has survived into posterity it's amazing i mean and there are so many like he delivers dialogue in such a way there like because we kind of jumped over the planetarium scene and i want to jump back a tiny bit to Mm -hmm. trace before we get to the chicken fight with buzz and everything just to trace his meeting with um, Plato. Yeah, sure. I mean, let's let's just dive into, I was going to talk about Buzz, but we can talk about that relationship first. Oh, we can talk about Buzz first because, you know, I mean, he finishes pretty early. So I think we can dispense with him. Yeah, I think it connects really quickly just to the thing that Mm -hmm. you were saying about like that chicken is almost whatever, you know, homophobic slur of choice. Yeah. and, you know, it's this very, one of the moments that I think is sort of encapsulates the weirdness of all of this is like, okay, yeah. so they're going to play chicken. They've stolen two cars. They're on this cliffside in the middle of the mm. night. They're walking over to discuss, to inspect the cars. And as they're walking, Buzz goes, oh, I'm, I'm Buzz Gunderson. And he's like, oh, I'm Jim Stark. And they like shake hands. And shake like, hands they yeah. don't even know each other's names. They're just no. being pulled along by this like, like you almost say, like almost ritualistic kind of like yes. primal anger. Yes, yes. Um, and then as they're standing on the edge of the cliff, sort of looking down, because it is, you know, you drive your car to the edge of the cliff and whoever jumps out first is chicken. Um, but obviously if you don't jump out, you'll drive off a cliff you and die. die. <laughs> Plot hmm. twist, that happens. Um, <laughs> but he says, uh, he says, mm. why, oh gosh, how does it go? I've got it. I, yeah. The, the, yeah. So, well, yeah, there's a couple of different, I want to, I want to really briefly tack on the fact that there's a buzz buzz is Natalie Wood's boyfriend, but mm-hmm. there is an, there's a moment they meet in the planetarium too, even though they mm-hmm. don't exchange names, you know, they sort of hassle each other and Jim makes a joke and buzz, you know, hassles him or whatever. And, um, he says, uh, uh, buzz says to his group of cronies earlier, he says, Oh, he's different. And James Dean go. James Dean goes. That's right. That's right. I'm cute too. Yes. <laughs> and I was Very just cute. like, stop flirting with him. It's so gay. So, so by the time they, they by the time they finally get to this moment that you're talking about on the cliff, um, first of all, as this dialogue is happening, they're sharing. There's a cigarette share. We've talked yes. about the cigarette yeah, before. Yeah. He takes it out of his mouth. Yeah. Jim lights the cigarette. Buzz takes it smokes it himself yes. and hands it back and, and basically it says back. like i like you he's he you says know. he says i like you and then jim says then why do we do this and, and buzz, buzz says buzz says we gotta do something and you're like well you could just fuck instead we got like i was <laughs> like i i literally was like stop the presses that is the most 
that is the, the most explicit demonstration of all the things we talk about that we've ever had. Yeah. Of the fact that like the character just copped to it. I like you, so why do we do this? Because we gotta do something. That's what being a man in America is. It was wild. And it was one of a couple moments where like some primal part of my brain was like, they're going to kiss. Like there were what? multiple yes! scenes where it's like, despite knowing perfectly well that nobody in this movie is going to kiss except Natalie Wood and James Dean. Yeah, I know. I think it's just something about the way James Dean can do a smolder. I was like, you know, they <sighs> sensually pass this cigarette back and forth. And I'm like, and now they just go have sex in the trees instead of playing chicken and everyone's Listen. happier. If you just let the boys fuck, nobody dies. If, if, if you learn, if we learn I heard that, that that's the motivation of the newest Marvel villain. They come Listen. on like every TV in the world and say, if you just let the boys fuck, <laughs> then my nobody evil plan does. will be stopped yeah. and no one will die. It's me. If you learn, if you take nothing else away from me, take that. Just let the boys fuck and nobody dies. But it I'm is, just saying. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you said. You're just like, that's it. That's the thing. It's that's it. the movie. It's like, well, we can't that's do the it. thing we want to do. So we have to do other things instead. And unfortunately, right. those other things often lead to us killing each other. Right, exactly. And so it just, it speaks from this absolutely, you know, this chasm of the 50s that we've returned to again and again, like, you know, just like more eloquently than anything else, that moment, I was just like, done, done. Mm -hmm. And Buzz, of course, is an, a short-lived character in the film because, uh, you know, he dies in a second. He drives and off a cliff. Because he drives off a cliff. And then all the kids rush to the edge and look over and then everybody's like, oh my God, scatter. And then everybody <laughs> leaves. And it's just like, you guys, a kid just, your like group leader just drove to his death. They're so unaffected. And they all just leave. I know, Judy it traumatized me. Genuinely, my like first thought was like, is nobody going to offer Judy a ride? Like she probably I swear drove to God. up with him. How is she going to get home? <laughs> Honestly, and so the only people who are left are Judy and Jim and Plato at the mm -hmm. end because, and it's just like, it is, I mean, that whole sequence is really bizarre. I was really surprised and weirded out by how unaffected the kids seemed by Buzz's death. I mean, it felt very, again, like some old white 50s psychologist being like, these yeah. delinquents lack empathy and they don't feel right. true friendships. They don't really care about each other. Right, right, right. It's very weird. So that, I mean, but yeah, that's like, and remember, this is all over a 24 hour period. This is yes. just one of the things that happens. But, but, you know, my, my note when we've got to this point was Buzz is also gay. Like it was just, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's gay in Rebel Without I mean, that's, everyone. It's why that's their problem. That's why everybody's they're gay. acting out. Um, but yeah, so let's rewind then and switch to a character who I'm was, you know, had to overcome a great hurdle for me to like him because he is introduced having killed some puppies. Um, <laughs> Speaking of the Freudian fucking the first the child psychologist walks into a room. We don't know this character from a hole in the ground. We've just <laughs> met him. And the psychologist literally leans in and super gently goes, why'd you kill those puppies, John? <laughs> left my literal body i was just like are you kidding me this nope. is what we're doing to introduce the troubled gay we're doing why'd you kill those puppies john why'd you kill those puppies john it's wild but yeah so that's how we meet john who's nicknamed yes. for like an infamously yeah i definitely go have sex with boys greek philosopher plato like oh yeah <laughs> Come on, yeah, no. guys. Literally, um, the writing is on the wall. On the wall. And the first thing he does is get hit on by Jim while Jim is drunk waiting around in the police station. It's literally the first thing that happens. He The, the first thing I wrote down when we were but seconds into the movie is Jim wanders over and goes, because like clearly poor little like Plato is like shivery and cold and like a little kitten. And Jim wanders over and goes, take my jacket. <laughs> and then he gets offended when Plato won't take it. Yeah, he goes, why didn't you take my jacket? Yeah, he comes back later. Like when his parents yeah. are like dragging him out after we've had all the scenes of psychoanalysis, he like spots Plato and like drunkenly stumbles over and it's like, hey. <laughs> Why didn't you take my jacket? It's yeah. wild. I mean, and also in that scene, the psychologist says, 
says, we can help you. And Plato says, nobody can help me, which of course, right away, ding, ding, ding. You're like, well, yeah, why would that be? Yeah. What is your intractable problem within yourself that cannot be solved? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's being gay. Let's just. It's being gay. (laughs) It's that he's gay. Um, And so then the next time we see him is at school where he has a picture of the Hollywood actor Alan Ladd in his locker. And he makes eye contact. It's like such a romantic moment. I love this moment. He's got his mirror and he's combing his hair and he makes eye contact with Jim who is standing behind him like in the mirror. It blew my mind. I mean, the symbolism of it, I was like, also it's it's full romantic interest music. Yes. Too. I mean, it's romantic interest music. And then he sees him in a mirror. Yeah. It's a class. It's the classic. Like he's just minding his own business. And then you like, see him, see him. And then Jim like sees himself in the reflection. It's just wild. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And then pretty much we get to the planetarium. Yeah. And like, it's just, Plato from that point forward is just like head over heels obsessed. There's this really sort of sweet, I mean, everything about Plato is sweet slash sad, but there's this sweet slash sad moment where he sort of, um, Jim like kind of gets his attention because everyone's like making snide commentary, you know, as Mm -hmm. this poor astronomer or whatever is like giving the lecture (laughs) in the planetarium. And when Jim pays attention to him, he's like palpably excited like he's oh so God. thrilled at the process. I think it's that Jim comes and sits near him and you just see yeah. him be like, yes. He like quivers. Like, oh my God. Yeah, it's, oh my God. It's so sad. So it's so sad. sad. And it's sadder because like, James Dean was 24, Salmaneo was 16 and they look every yeah. year of that difference. They do. Salmaneo looks like noticeably younger than everybody else, even though he actually was the same age as Natalie Wood, but she looks like a grown ass woman. And clearly all the other teens are played by 30 year olds. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then James Dean is like, it's me. I'm 23. And fuck And yeah, no, he, he looks like a child, Plato. He looks like an absolute child. Well, I mean, he looks like a 16 year old. Yeah. But yeah. so they, it adds this sort of sad yes. fawning puppy energy yeah, it does. To the like mm. really weird dynamic that they set up, which is that like he wants Jim to be his dad, question mark. <sighs> yeah, because you know how we always talk about you how you have to slot your incredibly intense affections for another man into a pattern that you can understand. Yeah. You know how that goes. We yes. talked about brothers last week. You know how that goes. So it's like, are you my father? Are you? He he says that he was like a man. At one point, like in the middle of the night after Buzz has died, he's like, man, I wish like if you'd been my dad. And then Jim, understandably, is like, shut the fuck up. What are you Jim's saying? Jim's like, I'm not your dad. I need to leave. This is weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's intense. There's yeah, like, a, oh no, no go, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's a sweet little moment that I really liked at the end of the planetarium sequence where uh, Jim is, I think, I don't think the Plato falls asleep, but he's sort of like, you know, he's hiding. He gets scared because the planetarium guy starts describing the heat death of the universe and how like the stars will implode in great detail, (laughs) like freaks out and hides behind his chair, like hides under his chair. And then everybody leaves and only Plato is left like huddled on the ground yeah i literally wrote in my notes up plato's concerned about the heat death of the universe gay (laughs) (laughs) so that's the kind of gay culture i identify with Mm -hmm. but um but astrology and the heat death of the universe (laughs) take me home but uh (laughs) jim wanders over jim wanders over when everyone else is gone in in one of my favorite lines says it's all over the world ended Yes. And then it gives way to this like conversation that's basically Plato being like, yeah. I know about this abandoned mansion. Want to run away with me there and we could live there together? I met you five minutes ago and I already yes. love you. Yes. He literally is like, there's this empty mansion. Do you want to go there with me? There's nobody there. Let's go. Let's go. We could just live there. It reminded me of the outsiders of the yes. church. Uh-huh. I mean, right. It's so the church, it's like, that's the, that's the reverie that Plato's attempting to have. 
Yeah, it's like we could run away to this secluded place that's like separate from society. But it's also like unlike the outsiders where it's this weird, like idyllic place outside like any recognizable form of the world. What Plato wants to do and what he does Mm. is play house. Yeah. He wants to find a dad and a mom and bring them there. Yeah. Yeah. It's and very weird. Be the weird little baby. It's so weird. It's just so weird. It's 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 icky, you guys. It's pretty gross. It's pretty icky, you guys. Yeah, I mean the yeah, the 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 introduction of the mansion. We obviously don't go there that early in the movie, but spoilers, we end up there. And it's just like the yearning that he has and really quickly yeah the natalie wood gets sort of brought into it and the film tries to sell this thing of like what he wants is both of them yeah like you say Mm -hmm. to come home with him and be his parents and it's kind of whatever but it's weird because it sort of it sort of only half succeeds in selling you that line because it's Mm -hmm. so palpably clear that the actual issue is that he's just flagrantly in love with james dean yes Yeah, there's this really interesting exchange that he and Judy have um, actually kind of in parallel with this, the conversation with Buzz and Jim, where they're like, if only we could have sex instead of, you know, fighting with knives, (laughs) Um, where Judy sort of has a crush on Jim or like is interested in Jim and she um, asks Mm. Plato, like, do you know him well? And Plato goes, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, he's my best friend. And then starts like just cr- crafting this little fantasy about his relationship oh. with Jim, which is again, creepily half dad, half best friend, you know, a little bit lover. It's like, oh, I, he's going to teach me to like hunt and fish, which is such a like sort of fifties feeling like 50s wholesome dad, yeah. dad. Yeah. And it's just like, he, you know, he's like, oh, well his name, yeah, Jim, his real name's James. Oh, he lets people that really like him call him Jamie. Like, and he's just lying. None of which is real. Yeah. Um, and it's just this like it's so sad and you can sort of see in his performance like his delight in getting the chance to make all this up yeah like he just like his pleasure in hearing it and saying it Mm. and thinking it is um Mm. it's really sad yeah it is it is really sad and it was also just interesting to me because it was like I think it was early enough in the in the movie that I didn't totally get yet what uh, what the movie was trying to construct about Plato in terms mm-hmm. of like the sort of weird Peter Pan, like I need I need new fake parents thing. Mm-hmm. But I had the penny of that hadn't dropped for me. So I was still in this place where I was just like, this is the two romantic and in- the two romantic interests mm-hmm. talking about him. Like while he's off over here having this romantic exchange with Buzz where they share the cigarette, like it's just the two love interests having a conversation about what do we know about him so far? Yes, I wrote that down as well. I said it's his it's two girlfriends standing around chatting. Yes, it is. It just is. And they, and you know, and they're both kind of like you know, she, Judy's looking off at him like, hmm, because he's having a conversation with her real boyfriend, who again dies in five minutes. Yeah. So who, it's just like she doesn't really care the, about. It doesn't seem like she does. It's just I don't know the whole um, the whole cocktail of it is really sort of heady and strange. It's super strange. And then the next the next exchange that Plato and Jim kind of have after the mm. trauma of, you oh. know, the accidental death is they right. go back home and Plato's like, do you want to come home with me? You could spend the night. We could stay up all night talking and then, then I could make breakfast. <laughs> he literally is like, I could make you breakfast. And I'm just like, we are inches from it. It's so, I mean, and that again is the same conversation where he's like, what if you were my dad? But it's like- <laughs> Do you make your dad breakfast, son? Yeah, like you're talking about two different things, buddy. Yeah, it's really confused. It's really confused and there's a lot of pathos in how confused it is. Yeah, it's just really, it's, yeah. I mean, Plato is just this weird, Mm. there's this funny little moment that like kind of ties off the knot of the lies he tells Judy where Judy kind of comes out to meet Jim when he's like, whatever, it doesn't matter. He went to the police station to hand himself in. He didn't hand himself in. He came home. He tried to call her. Her dad answered, blah, blah, blah. Um, And she calls him Jamie. And he's clearly like, what the fuck? Because that is something. Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. 
And like, it could kind of play off as like, oh, he's surprised. But like, you could see why she doesn't sort of cop immediately that that was a lie. But then she asks, how long have you known Plato? And he sort of laughs and shrugs and then very quietly mumbles since this morning. Mm-hmm. And it's this really odd, and like, not, she doesn't say anything in response to no. it. It's just this very weird little moment. And like, it's like, it is an embarrassing fact for Plato, but Jim also seems embarrassed. Yeah. To be confessing that they don't really know each other. Yeah. Yeah, it's very weird. It's a very weird. And then pretty quickly, everything accelerates. We get into this final kind of sequence of just kind of like surreal nightmare proportion because we've already, again, a little bit like Romeo and Juliet, we've already ratcheted up the tension by killing, by sort of shedding first blood in the midpoint. And then everything thereafter is like, we're on the run and we're in this surreal scape where kind of anything can happen. Um, So Plato, I mean, the next thing that I have written down is just the fact that uh, Plato, who lives alone with the, the housekeeper who can only do a sort of, you know, partial job of looking after him. Um, also, he rides a Vespa around town, which we hadn't yet mentioned. Yeah. No, he does not have a car like the other boys. No, he has a gay little scooter. Um, and so he rides his gay little scooter around looking for Jim. <laughs> I, I wrote down. It's so fucking funny. I wrote down the moment when. So he's when he's having a freak out. Um, he goes home and off of the like pink satin bed that I presume is his mother's underneath the pillow gets a gun. And I was like, there's got to be some kind of gay about the there's sort of there's something there's some, gay like, about the resonance here. Arrestes, Clytemnestra, like bullshit. Real shit. Like, yeah, killing someone with your mom's gun. Something Greek is happening here, you know, and also just like under the satin sheets, a gun. I was like, this kid is just alone in a house full of symbolism. Um, (laughs) No wonder he turned out this way. He was raised by symbolism. This is what happens to every Tennessee Williams hero. And we know what we know what they're like. We do know what they're like. Um, And so, yeah, but pretty quickly. I can't think of anything else that's like mega important before we get to the mansion. Yeah. They all turn up. I mean, Jim and Judy are there first and Plato sort of finds Mm -hmm. them there. And you, I was like, is this going to be, I mean, I knew it wasn't because I've seen this movie before, but like, you're sort of like, how jealous and upset is he going to be that Jim took Judy here? Yeah. That's what I was waiting for because Jim and Judy go there sort of ostensibly to maybe fuck, right? Yeah. I think so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's like, he's like, I know a place we can go. And then she kind of hesitates. And then he's like, you can trust me. And she's like, okay. And then gets in the car and then they end up at the mansion and he lets them in through this, like, you know, broken glass opens the door. And then Plato shows up. And when he first shows up, the door is closed and he can only see Jim and he can't see Judy because she's up the stairs. And I was really waiting for him to have a freak out that she was there too. Yeah. But it doesn't happen. No, it's sort of one of the more heavy-handed moments of like, oh, good, he'll just integrate this into his very heterosexual fantasy of having a mom and dad. And it's like, well, okay, that's not what he wants, but fine. Um, And he just, they immediately sort of begin playing this weird little house fantasy where he's like, let me show you my mansion. And like, they pretend to be a married couple and like they talk shit about having kids and then he gets tired and they like tuck him in. Yeah. And And then he says, he says, I couldn't believe this. I mean, he falls asleep like face down on the ground, which is pretty weird. But then they like lay his coat over him and he literally says, I'm happy now. I wish we could all stay here forever. Yeah. And then they leave the room, which is enough to trigger an absolute meltdown. I mean, and this is where maybe that's the jealousy. Like maybe that Mm. is the underlying thing of this sort of turn, which makes no sense Mm. in him being like, why did you leave me? And it's like, they were in the next room, buddy. And you were asleep. Um, Yeah, it's his abandonment shit. Yeah, but it's like, if he knows that they're in the other room about to have sex, which they are. Yes. I think maybe that is how this, how these two things join up. 
I think you're right. Yeah. Because yeah. the the sort of very kind of A to B, you left me, my abandonment issues. Now I'm going to wave around a gun and sort of right. have a psychotic Well, break. and like, right. And to and also everything unravels because they're also being chased by all of Buzz's friends yes. who, show, who show up and menace him. Yes. And so the violence kind of kick, the violence part of it kicks off because the the sort of other boys come and get them basically mm-hmm. but it, it but his emotional trauma is because he's like you left me here mm-hmm. you know to the two of them and yeah i think you're right it's that the added weight of like what they're you know the it's the two of them off in one direction and him alone in another right is like defini- what did they go it. do yeah 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 and it's it's a lot there. I had so many feelings because, of course, I didn't know what was coming, really. Mm. And so I, I really didn't know what happened. I didn't know how it ended, which is kind of an exciting place to watch such a famous movie from. You know, I can't sort of can't believe I had never seen it. But like the way that the um, the way that the game of house kind of thing, the way that pretending to be adults lasts and then and then disintegrates into childlike chaos where they're all running around chasing each other and screaming and laughing and then sort of finally they like put him to bed and then leave god it was just there's something so feral about the whole situation Mm. and it really surprised me i the way i don't know everything about the turn every turn in the ending really surprised me your call out of Peter Pan is really interesting because that's not yeah. something that occurred to me while I was watching it. But now that you've said it, I can't stop thinking about it. And it's very yeah. bad. It's like we're going to play yeah. a house and Wendy's going to be our mom and we're going to run mom. around yeah. and then go to bed. And mm-hmm. like it's the simultaneous, it's like the dream version of being a child, right? You can do mm-hmm. whatever you want and run wild and no one tells you what to do, but yeah. also someone's there to take care of you. Yes, exactly. It's that you don't, you, you get to express yourself and you don't have boundaries, but you have love and care. Yeah. Yeah. That's the dream. But then these menacing boys show up and real life comes a call in. Mm-hmm. And then of course the cops show up. Yes, and we sort of end in this standoff in back in the planetarium right. where Plato is hiding with his gun. The police are there, and Jim sort of goes in to lure him to get him out. out. Right, and of course, my whole thing, uh, you know, I couldn't believe how gay it was, frankly, here we are at the planetarium again, to end the psychotic break at the place where the romance sort of first began. I was yeah. like, unreal, yeah, like here we are in this special place to us. Unreal. And then we complete the other parallel gesture, which is that Jim gives Plato his coat, the iconic yeah. red sort of bomber jacket. And this time yeah. Plato takes it and clutches it and smells it. He yeah, buries he his face in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then after, you know, it's very a ragtime ending, like there's confusion. <laughs> he runs out, the police shoot him, he dies. And Mm -hmm. sort of like last thing Jim does is come over and zip up the coat. I could not believe. I was like, we're getting all the way here to this after the first words you said were, will you take my jacket? Like, oh my God. And the the tragedy of his death is that it is so avoidable. And it's like the, the confusion with the police is that Jim has done something clever and taken the bullets out of the gun and then given it back without yes. um without plato knowing that the gun isn't loaded anymore and so he waves it around and the police shoot at him because he's waving a gun around none of them knowing that it's no longer loaded and jim is shouting no i have the bullets i have the bullets and it and it's too late yeah it's i mean it's again it's the 50s are bad thing of like because they don't see the teenagers as real people and don't listen to them, tragedy happens. Where it's like, if you would just listen, it's like Jim is doing the right thing. Like Plato's freaking out because the police have their like floodlights on. So he goes out and he's like, can you please turn off the lights? Yeah. And like, he keeps trying to be like, do this and we'll come out. And then the police get impatient and they turn the lights back on. And it's like, he's, Mm. he's got this, trust him. Mm. But they, you know, that's the whole tragedy, I think, of all these movies in this era is like no one will trust or listen to the kids. No one will trust the kids. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. They're just like, wait 10 years and you'll be a person that I have to listen to. 
Right. And it's like, I'm a person now that's the entire, that's the entire cause of the, you know, I mean, that's the entire situation of the American teenager is I'm a person now. Yeah. And it's, yeah. When you then braid in this like queer subtext, it's like, yeah. And I know myself now. Yes. I'm not going to, there are things about (laughs) me that I'm not going to grow out of. I'm not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. Which leads to the weirdest moment. I know that that's a big, a big thing to say, given everything we've said so far, but yeah, really. I make the case, the weirdest moment of this movie is the final, like one of the final moments, Jim's last line of the movie, which is kind of famous because it's also very weird is he goes, mom, dad, cause his parents have sort of showed up at the planetarium, him and Judy right. are sort of clutching each other, traumatized. And he goes, mom, dad, this is Judy. She's my friend. And then they walk off together And Mm -hmm. the mom, you know, overbearing harpy mom sort of looks like she's about to say something. And then the dad sort of meets her eyes and kind of gives her this quelling look and like smiles a little. And then she smiles back. And then they put their arms around each other, just like Jim and Judy just did and walk away after them. And thank God everyone's heterosexual. Yeah. It's literally looks to me like them being like, oh, he's straight. Thank goodness. He's got a girlfriend. Yeah. Like, yeah, I just yeah. like, we were worried this boy who's dead on the ground with his, was his boyfriend, but clearly it's all fine. Yeah. yeah. Clearly we've literally, we've, we've killed poor Plato is dead and now everybody's heterosexual. I mean, it is breathtakingly weird. It is so, and it's just like them being like, ah, and you're like, what are you smiling about? There's a dead kid on the ground. Yeah, there is. You. There is. Yeah, it is deeply bizarre. And and then it's over. And that's the end of the movie. It's wild. I mean, and like, if anything, this is like more proof because like one of the Hayes Code things was that like gay characters have to die functionally. Um, and so the fact that Plato dies for no reason is like, well, yeah, yes, it was because he was gay. That's a like yeah. massive oversimplification of like the Hayes Code and how it worked. But, but still, yeah, that's, no, that's insane. Um, yeah, I mean, what can you even say? It's just, it's really strange that the ending, it's really strange. The way that it all escalates is strange and the way that it, you know, comes down in the sort of blaze of action that it is, is strange. One of the things that made it feel really play-like to me was how short and weird the actual action sequences are. Like in my memory, the chicken scene, because I haven't seen this movie since I was in like middle school. I think I was 13 Mm -hmm. the first and last time I saw this. Mm -hmm. Um, And my memory of the chicken scene was that it was really long and they were driving for a really long time, which is of course what you would do now to build suspense, but it's super short and then it's over. And similarly with the sort of standoff in the planetarium, like it's kind of short and then it's over. And the thing that feels really theatrical is like, they're just so transparently more interested in people's responses to events than the events themselves. Yeah. Like speaking of things being Greek, it's like you sort of yeah. you feel them wishing they could just like do that do it off screen, like off stage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Which yeah. is like what I they mean... get in the first scene. It's like, yeah, Jim, Judy, and Plato were off doing bad shit. We kind of know what they did. Right. But like right. the details don't matter. That's what matters right. is how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. What matters is how they feel about it. And the sort of moral quandary. I mean, I realize we actually haven't talked about Jim that much as a character in and of himself, you know, yeah. and he, he has a lot of really like explicitly framed sort of moral quandaries that he tries to kind of elicit his father's help with. And, mm-hmm. and you know, like he literally is just actually wrestling with what does it mean to be a man? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to, you know, like how, what does it mean to, to what is strength? Like, what does it mean to protect oneself? Like, yeah. Does being a man mean I have to rise to these challenges? Like, right. I have to play along with this pointless violence to be masculine. Right. And, and yeah, exactly. Must I? And like, when am I going to get to stop implicitly, you know, mm-hmm. and also just like where, and also, you know, the whole thing of they've moved around because he has a hard time in school, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, like the thing of, I just want a place where I can belong. You know, I mean, it's so. The thing he says that I wrote down in his first scene is he, he says, and he's talking about his dad, but. Mm-hmm. He said, if I could just mm. have one day where I didn't have to be so confused, where I didn't have to be ashamed of everything. That's right. 
And I mean, you know, you've been listening to this podcast. Once the word shame enters into the picture, it's sort of like- You know who we are. (laughs) But it really is like, yes, he's talking about his dad and like, he's like embarrassed about the way his dad acts, but sort of like, you're carrying around this constant shame. Like your dad makes you ashamed of everything. That's right. It does. It's exactly the Dead Poet Society thing of like this one little thing is ruining your life, your whole life, really. Whole this thing, life? this one thing, really. Yeah, and it's just yeah the idea of like, and then later you know we get a similar thing of Judy. Her mom is like, oh, it's just it's the age. She's at the age where nothing fits. Yeah, she does say that. Um, but yeah, that that gym line of like he he goes around feeling confused and ashamed. About everything. About yeah. everything because he doesn't know yeah. how to be a, a man. Yeah. In the right way or what he feels is the right way. Yeah. And <laughs> then he goes on this journey trying to protect his boyfriend and then his boyfriend is killed by the police in front of him and then heterosexuality is reasserted and then the film is over. Yeah, and it's like the word the word that keeps getting attached to him is sincere. Mm, yes. That's the word that um, when Plato and Judy are having their conversation um, on the cliff is oh, yeah. she's like, what is he like? And he's like, he's he's really sincere. And she goes, well, that's the main thing, which yeah. is like a very funny phrasing. But like she means it. She's like, oh, like she has this sort of like, gosh, yeah, that is a really important thing. And then later when they're playing house and they're sort of having what you feel is metaphorically their sex scene. Um, yeah. She is sort of like, I just wish men could be like you, you know, you're sensitive, you're sincere, you're gentle, but you also protect me. Like, it's like this sort of blend of strength and kindness that like, yeah, Judy is the one who sort of affirms that in him and is like, no, you are something great. You are a man now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm glad you brought up the word sincere because it gets used so many times in such weird ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's really mystifying. It's the, yeah, just the preoccupation with, can you be sweet and soft and kind, which is so clearly what Jim actually is and still a man in the world of this film. And I think it's so interesting that like the other movies that we've talked about, I mean, I think we've talked about a lot of movies that have posed that question. Like absolutely, Lord of the Rings yeah. posed that question. Absolutely, absolutely. But all of them were coming at a sort of temporal distance. Yeah. Whereas I feel like what makes this movie so weird is that like yeah. it also doesn't know. No, it, it doesn't, doesn't have the sense. It, like it is, it is grappling with a sort of redefinition of masculinity that is happening in its own time mm-hmm. period, and so there right. is no sort of there's no answer distance. There's yeah, there's no answer. Unlike no poet society, where it's like, right. of course you can. Like it right. doesn't have that outside voice to be like, yes, Jim, obviously you are so right. It's that it's asking the question of its own time, and it doesn't have the answer. Yeah. That is fascinating because, and maybe that's why there is the angst, you know, like, even though it's heavy handed and even though it's clunky in a lot of ways, like the angst is really poignant and it's really real and it's played really truthfully by James Dean, I think, because I, I feel like you can feel him actually asking the question and actually not receiving an answer. It's very intense. It is, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I mean, and then I think again, that's like why it leans on these super sort of heavy handed psychological psychoanalysis answers to its characters problems and why right. maybe it can't see the answer mm-hmm. itself is posing. I mean, I think it can. Yeah. Apparently later Salmoneo described Plato as the first gay teen in a movie. Yes. Yeah. So I think they actually did know what they yes. were doing, but like. In a funny yeah. way, I don't think that the answer of like, oh, well, Jim is gay solves his masculinity crisis because no. it's still the that's question. cultural. That's, yeah, it's still yeah. the question of like, okay, fine, I'm gay, but do I have to, you know, fight the boys I want to fuck like Buzz? Right. Or right. Do, do I sort of, you know, have to be housewife like my dad? Right. Like, what does it mean to be a soft man? I don't want to become my father. And yet I also don't want to fight anyone. It's really, really interesting. And I mean, the ways of the way I was thinking about the way that he expresses love and care in the film. And like, obviously he, 
he cares for Judy and for Plato. But the thing that freaked me, the, the, the thing that I really like that startled me, especially because of how we're introduced to the characters, like we said way back in the beginning, is that he, she isn't the one he has to save. Yeah, she's irrelevant. She's fine. He, she's sort of irrelevant to the plot. He has to save Plato. Yeah, well, because, I mean, I think the thing that, like, her resolution right. and the thing that I think is supposed to make us think she's going to go home and, like, things will be fine now is she's yeah. like, oh, I'm in love now. Now I understand what it's like to be in love. She does say that. She has that whole speech where she's like, I've always only ever wanted someone to love me, and now I love someone, and it's so easy. Yeah, and you sort of get the sense of, like, oh, okay, so that's going to let her let go of whatever weird thing she has wanted from her dad. Right. Because now she, like, it, you know, she, it, has an appropriate form of attachment and yes. you know yes has redirected yeah. those feelings the way that they're supposed to be so it's like she's fine we don't need a resolution for with judy's parents because no. why she's gonna go home and it's gonna be fine right mm-hmm. so he does save her he in does, a way just by existing yes yeah i mean yeah he does he does but the thing is like in terms of his activation in terms of his care and the like, damsel in distress is Plato. Yeah, the damsel in distress is plato you know and the tragedy of the film is that he doesn't get to save him yeah you yeah know? and i mean he and the thing is he jim does everything necessary he takes the bullets out of the gun and, and the someone, world won't let him save him. Yeah. Yeah. And I forget who is. Someone says that to his dad says you did everything you could I, do. I think it is his dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like, I guess that's the answer, right? Is that right. despite this tragedy, you now know how to be the man you want to be. Yes. Like, even though the, in this instance it failed, you have yes. found who you are. Yeah. And who you are is gay is gay (laughs) (laughs) it's just wild I mean I did like as I started doing research I was like oh everyone knows this okay great um but how could they not because it's so blatant um yeah so blatant I always think it's really funny when you're like reading badly written you know analyses of movies like this and they're like well you know they couldn't show it explicitly because homosexuality was still illegal in many states and i'm like let me tell you about some illegal things that they show in movies <laughs> yeah murder let, for example yeah let me tell you about how they show a kid drive a car off a cliff yeah it was like yeah, wow you're me, right yeah illegal things are never in movies that must be the problem <laughs> uh, yeah yeah um yeah, yeah. What, it, what it is is stone cold gay. Stone cold gay. Every <laughs> single character. Every second. Every second is gay. <laughs> and James Dean has a great jacket. James Dean, most importantly of all, has a great jacket. And the jacket is gay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us um, on this exciting journey, driving off the cliff of our own sanity. Um, <laughs> if you would like to reflect on James uh-huh. Dean's j- gay jacket, uh, you can find us on Instagram. Oh my God. I want to change our handle to James Dean's gay jacket. Um, but I, but I won't. It's at this movie is gay podcast. And on Twitter at this movie is underscore gay, where I can change our display name to James Dean's gay jacket (laughs) for this week only (laughs) James Dean's gay jacket. And next week, tune in on the podcast provider of your choice, subscribe to find out what we'll be changing our handle to next week. Probably nothing. Um, leave a rating. We still are, you know, weighted under Mark Gatiss's one star review. So we're one down because of Mark, you got to help us get back up there. Um, and we will see you next week. Goodbye.